15. And I'm going to give you a little bit of, of a background and a context just in case uh, you need a refresher or to give us a refresher. And, and, and we know that in, in the, uh, the book of John, written by the Apostle John, we know that the purpose of the Gospel of John is to prove Jesus' deity, His claims to be the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, one may have salvation. We all know the famous verse, right? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Everlasting life. And the Apostle John prompts the reader, prompts you and I, as we read it, to ask themselves two questions. Who is Jesus and what do I do with Him now? What do I do with His teachings? What do I do with His writings? Who is Jesus and what do I do with Him now? If you remember, that is a question that Pontius Pilate asked himself, right? Or asked Jesus himself when Jesus was being tried. Who are you? Are you the King of the Jews? As they say you are. Are you the Son of God? And then he asked him, what is truth he asked Pilate and what happens after Jesus says I am indeed the son of God I am indeed the Messiah then Pilate and you and I have to answer this question well what do I do with Jesus now and Pilate gave in and then he crucified Jesus right but that is the question and that as we read throughout the gospel of John that me and you have to ask ourselves right and in the uh, book or the um the, here, the uh, book of John, before Jesus would start to make the claims that he was in fact the Messiah, that he was in fact the Son of God, before he starts to make these claims, he actually asserts them over his three and a half years of ministry by a series of seven miracles that proved his claims to be true. Seven miracles, at least in the book of John. Of course, there's many more miracles that he did, many more signs, many more wonders, but seven in the Gospel of John. He did seven that proved himself to be the Son of God, the Messiah, who he claimed to be. The eighth miracle, or the eighth sign, was the resurrection, which happened after, which happened after uh, chapter 15. But what do we see at the seven? Up until chapter 15, he turned water into wine, John chapter 2. Right? That's the first recorded miracle we have of the ministry of Jesus. He turned water into wine. He healed the noble man's son in chapter 4. He healed the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. In chapter 5, chapter 6, he fed the 5,000. Chapter 6, again, he walked on water. Uh, chapter 9, he healed the blind man from birth. Uh, chapter 11, he raised Lazarus from the dead. So think about this is taking place over the course of three and a half years of ministry with his 12 disciples. In chapter 15, there's only 11 because one of them, Judas, had already left, right, to betray him. But these are disciples have, le have slept with them, have ate with them, have done ministry with him. And he's asserted over three and a half years, I'm Jesus, I'm the Son of God, I'm the Messiah. And what must you do with me now? Well, he says, you must accept me as Lord and Savior. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die for your sins. Right? In light of these miracles that proved his claims to be true, he then offered and offers salvation to all those who put their faith and trust in him. John 20, verse 30 to 31, it says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Those are the two purposes of why he wrote the book, to prove Jesus' deity, and that by believing in him you may have life in his name, you and I. This is the purpose of the Gospel of John. Jesus' deity and salvation in his name. Having done all these miracles up to chapter 11, 
what we see is that Jesus starts to dismiss himself from his disciples. He reminds them of why he came from chapter 12 to 16. He starts to dismiss himself now. I prove to you that I'm the son of God, the Messiah. I've done all these miracles. You've done ministry with me over the course of three and a half years. But now in chapter 15, they are now on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Can you picture that? Can you imagine that? They just ate the Last Supper together. There's 11 of them. One of them just left. They're probably wondering where he went, the disciples, because they didn't get it yet. And they're on their way now to the Garden of Gethsemane, where just a few hours from now, Jesus would be on his face, where drops of blood would be coming out of his pores as he submits to the will of the Father obediently, not willingly. He did not go to the cross willingly. He went to the cross obediently. Three times he wanted to escape that. Three times he said, Father, not my will. If it's possible, any other way. But three times he submitted to the Lord's will, obediently. Obediently. And on their way to the garden where Jesus would be arrested to be tried and shortly after crucified, he is giving his disciples his farewell. A series of last words before he would leave them. Not because of his death, but after his death. He would leave them. He would ascend to heaven. He would spend 40 days with them and then he would leave. So it wasn't that he was dying, so he's giving them his last words. It didn't matter. He was going to rise from the dead. But after he rose from the dead, he was going to leave them literally. He was going to ascend to heaven. And in his conversation, he instructs them. In chapter 15, he instructs them. And he instructs me and you, the believers here today. He instructs them concerning three things. In three, and, and chapter 15 is broken in three different parts. And, and for us, the believers, he instructs us concerning three things. Their believers' relationship to Christ in verses 1 through 11, the believer's relationship to Christ, the believer's relationship to each other, verses 12 through 17, and the believer's relationship to the world, verses 18 to the end of the chapter, to 25. We're going to spend uh, today or this morning in the first few verses where he's going to instruct them, he's going to instruct us in our relationship concerning to him, our relationship, the believer's relationship to Christ. These are the last words that he would give them, moments away from inviting them to pray with him in the garden, in light of his claims to be the Messiah, the Savior, and concerning their relationship to them, or to him, I'm sorry, he instructs them to abide in him, to abide in him. This is the basis upon which our salvation is established. Abide in Christ, right? This is what it means to believe in him, where it says in John 3, 16, it's not merely intellectual belief that I believe that there is a God or that there was a Jesus, but I must abide in Him, right? This is what it means to put your faith and trust in Him. This is what He's going to instruct them. This is what He is instructing me and you this morning, that we would abide from Him. And one thing that we see from abiding with Him, apart, apart from our salvation, there are other things that result from our abiding in Christ. Yes, we get saved. Yes, we have salvation. But apart from that, there are other things that result from our abiding in Christ. And in verses 1 through 8, Jesus will mention three. Three results of abiding in Christ. If you take notes this morning, the message is abide in Christ. And what we, do, what we will be discussing is three results, or I'm sorry, not three, but just the results of abiding in Christ. The results of abiding in Christ. In Christ, and there's many. We're just going to go over three in the first eight verses. Number one, uh, the, if if you write notes, the points for tonight. Number one, you will be a fruitful believer. 
If you're abiding Christ, number one, you're going to be a fruitful believer. Number two, you will have prayer answered. You will have prayer answered. And number three, you will glorify God. You will glorify God. Those are the results of a life that abides in Christ. And that is what Jesus is going to discuss with them in the, over the course of the next eight verses. And as a believer, as we're giving these points, don't you, this morning, don't you want to be a fruitful believer? One whose prayers are answered and one who glorifies God? Well, that's what Jesus is going to discuss now with his disciples. And that's what we're going to learn this morning. Would you pray with me this morning as we dive into God's word? Lord, we thank you so much, God, this morning, Lord, for your grace, your love, your mercy. We're thankful that we're able to approach, God, your word, Lord, and, and meet together and gather. And even as we contemplate, Lord, and reminisce, God, as you're on your way to the garden and you give a farewell message, Lord, that we would take it to heart this morning and that we wouldn't leave, Lord, this place the same way we walked in, God. Speak to us through your word, Lord. We ask this all in your name. Amen. You will be a fruitful believer. That's going to be the first point we will be going over. That's the first result of a life that abides in Christ. Before we get there, let's go ahead and start reading. John chapter 15, verse 1. Jesus is speaking here. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. The I am statement, Jesus said, I am the true vine. Jesus uses the I am declaration throughout the book of John seven times. The I am metaphor. Here he says, I am the true vine. In chapter 6, he says, I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, he says, I am the door of the sheep. In chapter 10, again, he says, I am the good shepherd. In chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Right? In chapter 6, the famous one, I am the way. I'm sorry, it's chapter 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then again now, in chapter 15, for the seventh time, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. What does that mean? Well, the true vine was in contrast to the nation of Israel. The symbol of a vine in, in Scripture was often used by God in the Old Testament to refer, to refer to the people of God, to refer to the nation of Israel, and oftentimes in a negative way. The prophet Hosea in chapter 10 verse 1 says, How prosperous Israel is, a vine loaded with fruit, but the richer the people get, the more pagan altars they build, the more bountiful their harvest, the more beautiful their sacred pillars. So Israel was intended to be the vine, and in the Old Testament, it's considered the vine, but often in a negative way. In the Old Testament, Israel is pictured as the vine, and God is presented as the one who cultivates and manages it, the vine dresser, the gardener. And how did he cultivate in the Old Testament the nation of Israel? Through prophets, right? Through different prophets. And kings in the Old Testament, he cultivated and managed the vine. But now we see that in the New Testament, those that are participants, you and I, of the new covenant have a relationship both with the Father and the Son. Both with the vine and the vine dresser. Think about that. We have both relationship, not only with the Father, but also with the Son. Not only with the vine, but also with the vine dresser. And Jesus, he says, he is the true vine. As he is departing from his disciples, Jesus thought it was imperative to encourage them, encourage me and you this morning, that their identity was no longer to be found in a people or in a nation, but in Jesus Christ 
himself. I am the true vine. It's no longer Israel. Israel failed to do so, to be the true vine. I am the true vine. And what is he going to do here? He says, my father is the vine dresser. He's the one that tends. He's the one that cultivates the land of the vine. And in chapter 2, he says, every branch in me that does not, I'm sorry, verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it, that it may bear more fruit. That it may bear more fruit. We see that Jesus now makes a distinction between two kinds of pruning. Two kinds of pruning. To one, it says that he takes away, right? That's what it says. If you branch in me that does not bear fruit, God, the Father, he takes away. He removes off the tree. He takes away literally means he lifts up, right? The pruning is one of, this pruning is one of complete removal off the vine. And these branches that are taken away that Jesus is speaking about, these branches that are taken away were never properly abiding in the vine to begin with. And this is shown by the fact that they did not bear fruit. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, my father, the vine dresser, he comes and he takes away. He lifts up. He prunes completely. There's a complete removal here of the branch. We know that God has to cut the branches that do not bear fruit from their root because they are worthless and often infect other branches, preventing them from also giving fruit. And you don't have to be a gardener, right? But if you have a garden of your own or even one fruit tree, you know that you have to prune uh, the tree, and sometimes you have to cut the branches completely if they're burnt or dying, right, in order that they wouldn't infect the rest of the tree or the other branches from the other branches to give fruit. So he says, every, if Jesus says, I'm the vine, and every branch in me that does not bear fruit, my Father will come, and he will lift up, he will cut off, he will remove. That's one uh, of the prunings that he speaks about, but he's making a distinction between two. The second one is, the second uh, batch of branches, he says, uh, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it would bear more fruit. So to one that doesn't bear fruit, he lifts up, he takes away. To the one that does bear fruit, he prunes. And prunes, or he prunes, the Greek word for prunes here, can also be translated to cleanse or to purify. So to one branch, the father cuts back, and to the other, he cuts off. To one, he cuts back, and to the other, he cuts off. Leon Morris, a New Testament scholar, says this, Left to itself, a vine will produce a good deal of unproductive growth. For maximum fruitfulness, extensive pruning is essential. For maximum usefulness, extensive pruning is essential. And how true is that in your life and in my life this morning? For maximum usefulness, extensive pruning is essential. So just like the same tree in your garden that must give fruit, and if you want it to give more fruit as it gives every year, you're going to go and you're going to start to prune it. Not cut it off completely, but you're going to start to prune it that it would give more fruit. See, the pruning process in our life is often a series of tests and trials that cleanse and purify our life while also producing spiritual fruit at the same time. What does it produce? Perseverance, endurance, maturity. And it makes us more useful for the kingdom of God. What have we learned in James chapter 1 as we're going through it on Sundays? It says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith, the pruning, produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Not lacking anything. 
So there's two kinds of prunings that Jesus makes a distinction of. One, the Father will take away that doesn't bear fruit. To the other, he'll prune that it will bear more fruit. Now, who are the branches? What does is, what is the branches even mean, right? If he's the true vine. Well, in verse 3, he says what to them? The disciples, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. See, the work of pruning and cleansing had already begun with the disciples. That for the last three and a half years, Jesus had spoken to. For the last three and a half years, they slept with him. They did ministry with him. They ate with him. Right? They were with him. They were in the practicalities of ministry with Jesus. And for three and a half years, he spoke the word of God to them. He spoke to them. So there he, therefore he says now here at the garden, for the last three and a half years I have, you have heard my word, I have spoken to you, therefore you are already clean. The cleansing process had already started in their lives. Had already started in their lives. And what is in Psalms 119, it says, how can a young man, a young person stay pure by obeying your word? By obeying your word. You want to know how to be clean? This morning, you have to obey God's word. Why do I obey it if I don't know it? I must read it. I'm a, I must be a student of God's word. See, this, these disciples, they had heard and received much of his word. And in some ways, they were already made clean. And why did they have to be made clean? Why did they have to go through the pruning or the cleansing process? Because they were being prepared for the work that laid ahead of them. Right? In order that they would be fruitful. What, what laid ahead of them? We read about in, in Acts chapter 2, a few pages further, right? They planted the first church and then exploded out of Jerusalem. So these disciples, for the last three and a half years, were being made clean, were being pruned in order that they would produce fruit as they planted the first church in Jerusalem and exploded out of there to the ends of the earth, right? What do we know about the Word of God is the Word of God is a cleansing agent in our lives. I often tell people it's a detox It'll detox your heart. It'll detox your mind as you dive into the word. It convicts and condemns sin. It produces holiness. It promotes growth and reveals power for the victory in the life of a believer. And Jesus continues to use the word to cleanse the believer today as he told them. He told the disciples, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Well, that applies to me and you today. If you want to be cleansed, right, internally, spiritually, what is the word of God going to do? Cleanse you. How is it going to do so? By convicting you, by condemning sin in your life, by producing holiness, by promoting growth. And it's going to reveal the power for victory in the life of a believer. That's what the word of God does. In speaking or when comparing husbands to their wives as Christ unto the church, look what Paul says about the word. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. With the washing of water by the word. That's what the word of God does. But now look what Jesus says in verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Abide in me and I in you. This is the vital relationship between the vine and the branches, between the believer and Jesus. This is the relationship between the branches and the vine, between the believers, me and you, and Jesus. Abide in me and I in you. What does Jesus do? He describes a mutual relationship that involves both him and us. Abide in me and I in you. 
As we abide in him, he also abides in us, is what he's saying. This type of intimate relationship we see as described in Songs of Solomon, chapter 6, verse 3. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. Think about that relationship between us and Christ. Abide in me and I in you. Think about that love relationship. As it's described in Solomon, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. That is what Jesus is desiring of me and you this morning. That we would be in him. That we would be his. And that we would take ownership of him in our lives as well. What does it mean to abide? Abide in me and I in you. It means to remain, to stay, to continue, to hold on. To abide means to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 15, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. You see that? Abide in me and I in you. Well, anyone that acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. In God. That's the abiding there. You see that? What does it mean to abide? Is to be obedient to his word. 1 John chapter 3, verse 24. So you must remain faithful to what you have been taught from the beginning. That's being obedient to his word. If you do, you will remain in fellowship with the Son and with the Father. Think about how beautiful that is. Not only with a vine, but with a vine dresser. But with the vine dresser, there's relationship now with both. If you do what? If you, re if you remain faithful to what you have been taught. If I'm being obedient to God's word, then I have fellowship with the Father. Then I have fellowship with the Son. Then I am abiding. And what does he say? So abide in me and I in you to remain, to stay, to dwell, to hold on. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. And then he says what? Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Neither can you unless you abide in me. See, just as the branch in and of itself cannot bear grapes apart from the vine, the believer, you and I, in and of himself cannot do any true good for the kingdom of God unless he consciously abides in Christ. You've never walked down the sidewalk or in front of your house, wherever it would be, and see a branch laying on the floor left for a week and two weeks, and it's just constantly blooming, right, and giving fruit. It doesn't work that way, right? It has to be connected to the vine. Well, in like manner, you and I, the believer, in and of ourselves, we cannot do any true good for the kingdom of God unless we consciously abide in Christ. And although Jesus was about to depart from them, he wanted them to know his desire and their need for a constant relationship with him. Did you catch that? It's God's desire, but it's our need. It's God's desire that we would have relationship with him, but it's our actual need that we would. He wanted them to know that. He spoke, and if, if you notice as we read there, he spoke in a way that indicated that abiding was a choice on their part. What does he say? Neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. There's an indication there that you must choose to abide. There's an indication there that it's a choice on mine and your part. We must choose to abide in him. Just as the branch without the trees is useless, so is our righteousness without Christ, is what Jesus is saying. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's, it's not that disciples could not be active without Jesus. Very much so, and me and you can as well. 
But apart from Jesus, their activity would be of no real eternal value. To me and you, we can be active in the ministry. We can be active at home, in our workplace, and thinking that we're doing something for the Lord. But if we're not abiding as branches, then everything we do is of no real eternal value. That's what he says. He says, if you don't abide in me, then then you can do anything as a branch in and of itself, outside of the tree, does not bear fruit. Well, neither will you, he says. What does Isaiah 64 verse 6? We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. The righteousness of man, apart from Jesus, apart from the branch. I'm sorry, apart from the vine. They are nothing but filthy rags. Rags, like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. Like the wind. So abide in me, and I in you. For without me, you cannot honor God. Without me, you cannot bear fruit. You cannot do anything that has real eternal value. Now he goes to verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Again, he who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. For without me, you can do nothing. Jesus reiterates their position in him. Again, I am the vine, you are the branches. He reiterates their position in him as the true vine in contrast to Israel. Having done so, what does he say? Abide, they must abide in him if they want to bear fruit as believers. And you and I also. We must abide in him if we want to bear fruit as believers. But he doesn't just say bear fruit in verse 5. He says bears much fruit. Bears much fruit. See, being a fruitful believer is inevitable if there is abiding. If you are abiding, you are also being pruned. If you are being pruned, then you will bear fruit. That is the purpose of the branches, to bear fruit on a tree, right? At least a grape tree or a grapevine. That's the purpose, right? That they would bear fruit. People do not raise grapevines just to be looked at and admired. That would be insane, Right? They labor and toil and cultivate the land. They plant, they water and tend to the vines so that they can produce fruit. Not so that, just so that they can raise the whole grapevine and we can go and take pictures, although we do that. But that's not the purpose of why they did that. It's to tend to them, to raise them up, to water them, to plant, to cultivate the soil so that the branches will start to do what? Bear fruit. That's the purpose of the branch. And if we're the branches, what is the purpose of the believer? To bear fruit. Not just to hang on to the vine. Hey, look at me, I'm attached to Jesus. No, it's to bear fruit. That's God's desire for our life. Not that we would bear fruit, or only bear fruit, but that we would bear much fruit. That's the, that's, that's the, that's the point number one of this morning. A direct result from abiding in Christ. You will be a fruitful believer. You will be a fruitful believer. And the principle here that Jesus is teaching is that there is no fruitfulness. Write this down. If there is no fruitfulness without first faithfulness. There is no fruitfulness without having first had faithfulness. Faithfulness to what? To his word. Faithfulness to the words that he has spoken to us. Out of our faithfulness then springs forth fruitfulness. That we being the branches abiding to the vine which is Christ. That he would cultivate the soil of our hearts. That he would water and tend to us. Not so that we can look pretty or cool. Hanging on to Jesus. But that we would bear much fruit. 
That's the purpose of why we're the branches. That's the purpose as to why we're on the vine. Not, not hey, hey, look at me. I'm attached to Jesus on the branch. No, the purpose of a branch on a grapevine is to bear grapes. The purpose of you and I abiding in the vine, which is Jesus, is that we would also bear fruit. God's work in our lives, our abiding in Him, should be evident by the fruit produced in our lives. In our lives. Is there evidence of that? If I go up to an apple tree and I start to pick it, I should expect apples. If I go up to a banana tree and I start to pick it, I should expect bananas, right? If I go up to a Christian, there should be fruits that are evidence that I'm a Christian, that I'm a believer, that I'm abiding in Christ. Is there fruits in your life this morning? We read a few of those fruits in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such there is no law. Those are some of the fruits. Are they abiding? Are they producing in your life? Because these are the evidence that we're abiding in Christ. Have you ever told someone, you know, whether it be at work or somewhere else, I'm a Christian, really? And they're surprised. You're a Christian? Well, what kind of fruit are you producing? Right? You, you, you won't confuse an apple tree if you see apples on it. You're not going to say that's a, you know, banana tree. You know it by its fruit. So number one this morning, the results of abiding in Christ is you will be a fruitful believer. A fruitful believer. The second point we said is you will have prayer answered. Look what it says in uh, verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If anyone does not abide. The word if is the conditional clause. There's over 1,500 conditional clauses, ifs, in scripture. You know what that tells us? Is that you have to make a choice. You have to make a choice. This is a conditional clause. The idea is that we must make a choice if we want to abide in Christ. A life, listen to this, a life that fails to abide is a life that will succeed to fail. A life that fails to abide in Christ is a life that will succeed in failing. In failing, that's what verse 6 says, if he does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and it's withered. And they gather them and they throw them into the fire and they are burned. See, a branch only has life as it remains in the vine. So the believer only has spiritual life as he, as he remains in Jesus. In Jesus. Therefore, a branch that does not abide does not have life, is what Jesus is saying. And because it does not have life, it has no place on the tree. Well, neither does the believer have a place in Christ if he chooses not to abide. Right? The lifeless, lifeless branch bears no fruit. It's useless. And what does this verse say? That its wood is only good for burning. It says that these branches are cut off and he is cast out as a branch and withered and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. See the cast out branches? Church, the cast out branches are the ones who were once true believers and at one point stopped abiding and they stopped giving fruit. Or like Judas, believers who appear to be abiding but never produce fruit. You see, you see those two? See, these branches were never really abiding. Either they had the appearance of abiding or were once abiding and at one point stopped and stopped producing fruit. So it says, well, my father, the vine dresser, he has to come. He will cut them off. He will gather those branches and then they will be burned. They're useless. 
their wood is only good for burning. And the idea is plain here that there are no true disciples who do not abide. There's no such thing. You've heard the term before. I'm a Christian. I'm a non-practicing Christian. Makes no sense. You ever heard that term? I'm a non-practicing Christian. It's like saying, well, I'm kind of pregnant. Makes no sense. Right? The idea is plain. There's no true disciples who do not abide. There's no such thing. And these branches that are cast out, they're burned. Right? The burned branches is an imagery, an association with the life to come. The punishment and consequences of a life that fails to abide. What's the imagery? We know it to be. It's hell. Right? It's an association of the life to come for the believer who chooses not to abide. Who fails to abide. John Trapp, Bible commentator, says this. If it be painful to bleed, it's worse to wither. Better to be pruned, to grow, than to cut up, to burn. And then he says here in verse uh, 7, again, if you abide in me. That's the third time he says, if you abide in me. If you abide in me, here's the second result of abiding in Christ. If, uh, if you abide in me, the second result of choosing to abide in Christ is you will have prayer answered. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Abiding in him is being faithful to his words, right? What does he say? If you abide in me and my words Abide in you. And Jesus had just mentioned this in the chapter prior, chapter uh, 14. Uh, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and, he, and we will come to him and make our home with him. We will abide with that believer. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. I love that he says that. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. See, church, you can say you're in him, but is there, is there evidence of him in you? You can say you're in his word, but is there evidence of his word in you? I'm coming to church. I'm, I'm doing ministry. I'm going to home. I'm opening up the word of God. But is the word of God in me? Is there evidence of the word of God in me? Am I living it? Right? He says, if, I abide, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Is there evidence of his word? Is there evidence of him abiding in us? Because we can say we're abiding in him. We can open up God's word. We can come to church. But is there evidence of him in us, in our life? Evidence of abiding should be seen in practical ways in your everyday life. The fruit of abiding is obedience. That's what he just said, if you keep my word. But church, there is no obedience if there first hasn't been Repentance. John the Baptist at the Jordan River in Luke chapter 3 verse 8, he says, Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Worthy of repentance. Is there fruit in my life? Is there fruit in your life? That says that I've repented. That says that I'm abiding. That says that I'm obedient to God's word. Are we bearing fruit that is worthy of repentance? And if so... If we're abiding and his word is abiding in us, the second half of verse 7 says, then you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Right? That's the second result of abiding in Christ. You will have prayer answered. This promise, church, is not for anyone, but for those who are abiding. Right? You will have prayer answered when you have shown fruits worthy of repentance. When you are abiding in him and his words are abiding in you. When you are doing so, 
then what you desire and ask for will be according to God's will. Did you catch that? It's not so much that I'm abiding in him, therefore I can ask God whatever I want, he's going to give it to me. Well, what happens when I start to abide in him and his word starts to abide in me, then my desire, what I desire and ask for, automatically is going to be a heart and desire after God's own will for my life. That is, when, that is what I'm going to pray for. And that prayer, God will answer. 1 John chapter 15, uh, 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, this is the confidence that we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have, we know that we have what we have asked of him. What we have asked of him. Right? This is the confidence that we ask anything according to his will. Well, how can I know that I'm asking according to his will? If I'm abiding in him and his words are abiding in me. If I'm obedient to his word. He, he says, and th this person who's abiding in me and whose my words are abiding in him, like he says in verse 3, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. This person is being pruned. This person is being made clean. And what does James say about the person who's being made clean or made right or righteous? James chapter 5 verse 16, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The prayer of someone who abides in Christ and whose words abide in him lays hold of God. His prayer, right? And lastly, the result of abiding in Christ, a life that abides in him, you will glorify God. You will glorify God. So see the purpose in verse 8, it says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. That you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. The purpose of, of abiding is to bring glory to God. What does it mean to glorify? Because he says this, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. What does it mean to glorify God? It means to praise, to worship, to honor, to revere Him. Jesus gives us the answer and requirement to how God is most honored and revered. Think about this. If you're one of the 11, you're on your way to the garden and Jesus says, guys, guys, by this my father is glorified. I would have leaned in. Wow, he's going to tell us how the father is glorified, how he's honored and revered and worshipped or most honored and revered. He says what? That you bear much fruit. See, by abiding in him, we bear much fruit. And by bearing much fruit, God is worshipped by our lives. Psalms 22, verse 3, but you are holy, speaking in regards to God, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Can you picture that verse? You are holy and you are enthroned. Picture a throne. God is sitting on the throne and the throne is in the midst of the worship of Israel or in the midst of the worship of us. Can you imagine this morning as we were worshiping a few moments ago, our praises are being lifted up. And it says that God is enthroned in the midst of our worship. This is what it means when it said that God inhabits the praises of his people. Just as a person who raises a grapevine, they labor and toil to cultivate the land. They plant water and tend to the vines that they can produce fruit so he can enjoy them in like manner. God wants us to abide in Christ. That we would produce fruit. A life that produces fruit worships and honors God. By their life. Worship is a lifestyle. It's not 30 minutes on Sunday morning. What does it say that God chooses to dwell and enjoy the praises of his people? 
2 Corinthians verse 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 15, for we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Look at the last uh, portion of verse 8. After bearing much fruit, so you will be my disciples. So you will be my disciples. See, not only, not only are we this aroma of worship to God, but amongst other believers and amongst the world, the fact that we're bearing fruit, it also serves as our identity as disciples. So you will be my disciples if you bear much fruit, Jesus says. Right? Again, verse 8, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. A life that abides in Christ will glorify God. Right? Will glorify God. If you abide in Christ, you will be a fruitful believer, you will have prayer answered, and your, your life will glorify God, will honor and worship Him. Church, this morning we have been encouraged by a reminder, you must abide in Christ. And in doing so, you will, have, you will be a fruitful believer. In doing so, you will have prayer answered. You will glorify God by your life. So that should prompt a self-examining question this morning. Is there evidence of your abiding in Christ today? Is there evidence of me, of my life, abiding in Christ today? If so, is there much fruit being bared? And if so, is it fruit that remains? Is it fruit that remains? John chapter 15, verse 16. Later in this chapter, Jesus says this to his disciples. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. And that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. In verse 16, he almost summarizes verses 1 through 8. He says, you didn't choose me, guys. I chose you. But in response to my choosing, you must abide. In response to my choosing, you must choose also to abide in me. And I didn't choose you for seasonal fruit. He says, I chose you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. Have you had a tree that gave fruit for a season? And after a year or two years to stop giving fruit, it was seasonal. See, God is not interested in seasonal fruit, but a fruit that is remaining because the branch is also remaining in the vine. See, God chose you. God chose me. Now we have a responsibility to respond to his choosing by our abiding in him. We must abide in him. He's chosen us. Now we must abide in him. And then he says what? Not only did he choose us, but he appointed us. That we would what? It says that we would go. Go is a verb. Which means that it's used to describe an action, a state, or an occurrence. See, God chose us that we would go. Church, where have you gone or are going? Where are you producing fruit? How does your life at work look like? Look like at home? With family? With friends? Is there fruit being produced? This is why he chose you, that you would abide in him. And in abiding in him, he's appointed you to go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should remain. It will not remain if you're not abiding. It will not remain if you're not remaining. Abiding in the branch. With the choosing, he also appointed you to action, you and I. That you would go and bear much fruit as he promised. And then he promised, I'm sorry, that he would answer your prayer and that you will glorify God. The results of abiding in Christ. We will be a fruitful believer. We will have prayer answered. 
and we will glorify God. Let's go ahead and pray, church, as we close today's service. Hey, listen, if you need prayer this morning, there's going to be a few of us up here, and I would encourage you that you wouldn't leave this place without having prayed for. We all need prayer. And if you were at one point abiding and you say, I don't really see the fruit anymore in my life. I want to produce fruit, not just fruit, but much fruit. Because I want to be a fruitful believer. I want to have prayer answered in my life. And also, I want, to, I want my life to glorify God. Then you come up here after uh, this last song or during the last song and we'll pray with you. Lord, we thank you so much, God, for your word. Lord, because your word is real, it's true, it's relevant, God, yesterday, today, and forevermore. And we pray, God, that your word would have pricked our hearts. As your desire for us is to abide in you. Is to have intimate relationship with you. And in doing so, Lord, you want us, believers, God, to be fruitful in our life. To produce fruit. In doing so, God, you desire to answer our prayers. And in like manner, God... A life that produces fruit because we're abiding in you will glorify the Father. And we want to do that, Lord, this morning. So we pray that you would convict our hearts, God. And that you would bring us once again back to the vine. That this morning as we leave this place, that we would choose to abide, to remain. To bear fruit and much fruit. And fruit that remains. In Jesus' name we pray. And the church said... Amen.